0: Hey everyone, my name is Nathan Forster, and I'm asking the big questions of authors and activists, scholars and survivors, poets and priests, therapists and theologians, and basically everyone in between. This will be a resource for people who, deep in their bones, think that surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we've sometimes put it in. And so what better way to discover this than by learning people's stories and their specialities in order that we deepen and widen our perspective on faith, community, society and life. So journey with me as we go deeper and wider. It's not something you notice until someone points it out. But food has a central role to play in the life of faith. In fact, the beginning of the Bible starts with food, ends with a feast, and has Jesus inviting people into a meal that signifies his saving work. So I'll say it again. Food has a central role to play in the life of faith. And maybe this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, food is part of the fabric of our existence. Gatherings are normally done over food. Our most regular shopping is for food. Whole cultures are defined around the food that they make. And if we don't eat, we literally starve to death. So it's no wonder then that God would have something to say about our relationship to food. So today, we're talking about the intersection of food and faith with Kendall Vanderslice. Kendall Vanderslice is a baker and writer from Durham, North Carolina. And she writes on the intersection of food and faith. She's a graduate from Wheaton College, Boston University, and Duke Divinity School. She writes for Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, Religion News Service, and Faith and Leadership, and is also the author of We Will Feast Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. With Kendall, we'll be exploring questions like What is the relationship between food and faith? What Role Does and Can Food Play in the Life of Faith? We'll also be speaking with Kendall about how some churches are using food as a central part of their worship gatherings. So let us hear today on The Intersection of Food and Faith with Kendall Vanderslice. So tell, tell our listeners your faith journey.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in a Christian household. Um, my my parents were both Christians. I actually come from a long line of, of pastors. Um, my grandfather is a pastor, several uncles, um, cousins. So that is sort of the, the language of the church um, and the language of Christianity has always been sort of a part of my life. Um, but it was in college that I really... Uh, found home in more liturgical tradition. Uh, I grew yep. up in much more sort of an evangelical expression of faith, and um, I gleaned a lot from that, um, especially I think I gleaned a lot from this this focus on a close personal relationship with God. But um, for me, I think I just found such beautiful grounding and hope um, and life once I Joined a church that really flowed with the rhythms of the liturgical calendar, that um, mm, yeah. that that focused on the structure of the liturgy, and that just completely opened my understanding of, of the Eucharist. Um, I, I sort of growing up I always had this fascination with the bread and the wine, but no clear really sense of. Um, why it mattered so much because it it didn't seem yeah. to matter all that much in the churches that I grew up in. And once I joined, um, an Anglican church, it, it just completely flipped my understanding upside down. Um, this became the center point that all the rest of, um, our worship was built around and. As yeah. Someone, right. Okay. Yeah. So as someone who's a baker and who, has always loved food um, and been fascinated with kind of the this these social dynamics of food and of eating um, putting a meal in the center of worship um, just completely shifted my my journey of faith and I think kind of <laughs> everything I do now has just poured out from that major shift.
0: Yeah wow so for you that the liturgical tradition when you had that the communion, the Eucharist in the center, yeah, it, you're right, it it does draw people to the central drama of scripture, which is displayed in the the bread and the wine. So you know you have this intersection of faith and food. So yeah. how did you come to be in interested in in that intersection of faith and food?
1: Yeah, so I mean, food has always been an interest of mine as well. Um, When I was younger, I would spend all of my evenings playing, experimenting in my parents' kitchen. Um, It was baking was sort of my way of dealing with stress, my way of dealing with um, really all emotions. When I was excited, I would bake. When I was bored, I would bake. Um, So I was always in the kitchen. And um, right after I graduated high school, I was in that sort of question of what do I, what am I going to do with my life? So when I, when I graduated from high school, um, I was sort of in that, that phase of asking, what am I going to do with my life? Um, and I decided to take a gap year because I was just not ready to start undergrad. Um, I felt like my friends that were going to college already had kind of a clear direction of what they were doing. Um, Mm. so I took a gap year and to kind of go and figure out who I was, um, which sounds so cliche, but I, I went to work um, on a hospital ship and I, uh, two weeks before I was supposed to leave, um, I had raised enough money for my plane to get there and for my monthly expenses for my gap year, but I didn't have enough money for a plane to get home and I needed to figure out um, a way to make that money. And I, yeah, right. I'd been working as a lifeguard and the pool had closed for the summer and so um, I... I didn't really have any idea what I was going to do, and so I went back to the kitchen where I always go and thought, well, I can I can make cupcakes, and I can make bread, um, and so I emailed everyone I knew in town. I was living in St. Louis, Missouri at the time, um, emailed all my old high school teachers, my, our friends from church, all of my parents' friends, and, and in a matter of two weeks, I had made um, several hundred dollars worth of cupcakes and bread, and- wow realized in that process this is what I want to do with my life um so it was really fun sort of I thought that the the year itself would would open up my eyes to my future but instead it was this preparation to go that really um gave cast a vision ahead so I didn't I still went um and I spent this year and I actually once I arrived on the ship uh was able to get Work as a baker, um, and so I spent that year baking and having to do a lot of experimenting, kind of with the limitations of what we had on board. Um, and so that really got me further into the the science behind baking and and really yeah, understanding, wow. yeah, what different ingredients do. We um we were sailing uh in the two weeks leading up to Christmas, and we ran out of butter. And of course, we're in the middle of the ocean, so oh, there's no. no way to get more butter. <laughs> And so I was, um, I was asked to figure out uh, recipes for Christmas cookies that don't require butter. And so oh, I that was, that was <laughs> sort of my first, um, yeah, my first time to experiment and have to really learn about the, the science of baking and, and doing recipe development. And it was so fun. Um, such a strange place to learn about recipe development. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my so goodness.
1: It's a fun memory because so. we're, we're coming up on that same, that same season again. <laughs>
0: Wow. Geez, that's a baptism by fire, having to um, (laughs) find a recipe there.
1: It really is. It really is. Yeah, but so after that, I I had really wanted to go to culinary school, but um, just for a number of reasons, felt like God had directed me to this one college that um, I didn't particularly want to go to. But um, it had just become undeniably clear that that the Lord was saying, this is where you're supposed to go. So I went um, and in the time that i was there um, i studied anthropology and we they brought in some faculty that did anthropology of food and anthropology of consumption Um, and so they helped to expand my vision of what it could mean to study food and to work with food Um, and then with that sort of in those classes it began transforming the ways that i was reading scripture um, and seeing sort of food as present throughout this entire story of scripture um, and then I, I think sort of that that linchpin moment for me was um, I was in a Christian theology class and reading an article on the Eucharist, and this is all kind of in the same season that I am that I'm beginning to attend a liturgical church, and yep. I read this article and realized and I it just changed everything. I remember reading it and thinking there's so much more here than I've ever heard before, so much more Damn, here wow. than than I've ever um, seen talked about in church, and so. Yeah, that was, that was it for me. I was hooked. I, wanting to see how food played into the life of faith has kind of been my thing ever since.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned before as well that you started to read Scripture anew and you actually started to see food as a predominant theme or predominant reality in Scripture. Um, on that, can you, can you give us perhaps a brief overview of seeing the scriptural story through the lens of food?
1: Yeah, I mean, once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. But the the biggest sort of pieces that um, that I think first jumped out to me was just the story of Genesis, of, of humanity being created out of soil, that we are soil animated by the breath of God, um, the very same soil that that sprouts forth everything that we eat. Um, And we were created with the need to eat. Um, We could have been made like plants where we could, you know, convert energy from the sun through our skin or where we could soak up, you know, nutrients from the soil, but we weren't, we were, we were given tongues and we were given taste buds Mm. and we were given this ability to delight in the act of eating um, and also a need to eat. Um, But then also the story of, the fall, the story of Genesis 3 is the story of eating done um, in a selfish manner, eating done in this purely for the delight and the the reasoning of humanity, not eating um, for its ability to bring us into communion with one another and with creation and with God. Wow. So it's the story of a meal that, um, you know, the the distortion of eating, eating being used um, in this way that brings death and destruction instead of communion and life, um, wow. and so that that sort of is the the opening story of Christianity. But then, but then Jesus's life parallels that um, and subverts that in his entire ministry, being through meals around tables. Um, you know, his first miracle being turning water into wine, and mm, uh, yes you know, multiplying loaves and fish and extending forgiveness to Peter and an offering of fish and making himself known on the path to Emmaus through the breaking of bread, and then actually offering us a meal as this primary means of remembering his death and his resurrection and his promise to come again. Um, So I I see those as two parallel meals, you know, the the meal that brought destruction, uh, but then Jesus's Jesus's death and the meal accompanying it as this meal that brings new life
0: oh wow wow and I guess as well towards the end of scripture you have you have the the imagery of the the tree of life which its leaves yield the healing of the nations
1: yes and it bears its fruit all year round uh, I wow. love that imagery that is yeah yeah
0: wow, wow. it yeah. really it really is all throughout scripture and it's it's interesting that since reading your book, I've just kind of gleaned throughout the kind of the, the common themes of scripture and the, the story arc of the Bible, and it's found in so many verses. This very, it's 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 language of taste. It's 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 yeah. sensory language oh, all throughout absolutely. scripture.
1: It is.
0: It uh, is. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 absolutely incredible, actually. And I guess I guess that leads to my next question. And so, what what role does food play in the life of faith?
1: Oh man, that's a big one. <laughs> I mean I, I think it I think it well, I'm really interested right now sort of in um in what the role of eating together plays in our mm. life as Christians. Um I mean there's so many so many threads you could follow down as far as the role eating plays in the life of faith or the role food plays um, you know, thinking about the treatment of the land in the production of food, thinking about the treatment mm. of farmers and farm hands, thinking about the injustices of just who has access to land and, and who has the wisdom of how to work the land and, and whose you know, wisdom has been exploited and whose has been valued. And, you know, so there's so many things you can, you can, go down that thread of, of really thinking about um, what does it mean to seek the flourishing of, <clears throat> of all people and the flourishing of the land um, when mm. it comes to food. I'm, I'm very interested in this question of what happens when we eat together and how mm. does that change the ways that we relate to one another? And I think that starting there um, eventually will lead you back to a lot of these other questions around, um, the many nuances of how food arrives as our at our table, but those questions mm. are just so complex, and the systems behind them are so complex um, that it's really, I think, impossible to pull at those threads without first understanding this central piece of eating together um, as this means of getting to know one another, of getting wow. um, of opening our eyes to the experiences of others, um, that then can kind of allow us to pull out all of these other questions around, um, the differences of our experiences.
0: Yeah. Wow. So it sounds like there's both very large kind of macro things, relationships that has to do with food, such as like food production yeah. and yes. that. but then yeah. there's also, there's also that sense in which how that all kind of shrinks down to the experience of, of intimacy and being present with, with people and community and how, how food relates there. It's it's um it's it's really fascinating. It's it's one of those things I've been reflecting on since reading your book Mm. that it's often the most mundane things which are the most cosmic things. Like Yeah we we literally need to eat or we die. (laughs) And, And yeah and as such to actually take the time to see the role food does play now and in our faith and the intersection of food and just ecology and food and community and food and goodness gracious so much and how that all can be seen through the lens of Jesus. There's – I can imagine there's a lot to unpack. I noticed in your book there were so many good other book recommendations of, like, farmers who are theologians and – yeah. And exploring also the systemic things to do to do with food I'm wondering if you could perhaps this is a large question to answer but you can give it a good crack <laughs> what is our <laughs> current cultures relationship to food both the good and the bad
1: yeah um well I mean'm I'm, I'm curious to hear your response to that question too since we are in um, you know I think probably similar cultures and, and that we're both Western cultures but then quite different in that um, yes. we're just in different yes. countries. Um, yeah. So I think probably a similarity between the two is um, this, this understanding of food primarily as fuel. Um, we see it primarily as this thing that is necessary to keep our bodies running. Uh, we see it basically as its basis need need um, or its ability to meet our basis need. And that really um, harms our relationship to food when we think about it pr- primarily in terms of calories and in terms of, kind of what this is going to do to my body and whether Mm -hmm. the results it's going to give my body is something I like or don't like. Um, We're completely unable to delight in the process of eating and to see food as this thing that is meant to bring joy, that is meant to bring us into relationship with the rest of God's creation um, and into relationship with God. And I think that in turn affects our relationships to our own bodies because we mm. primarily see our bodies as something that we can and should control um, and and not something that is a part of us that, that we live out in relationship um, with. So I think that is one of probably the most harmful turns of kind of how our culture approaches food. Um, mm. But I, I think, you know, foodie culture is very much a thing here in the States and I'm guessing it probably is where in Australia as well. Um, Mm, Yes. But, and that, that I think can have both good and bad. It can have good and that it, it does make the focus more on this, like the delightful nature of food. And um, it can put more um, thought to the, production of food and how it gets to you. Sometimes it's more for care of the quality of the food itself than care for the people Mm. who are responsible for making the food. But, um, you know, still if you're still, it can have positive results. Um, but that, that also can be a negative thing just because it can, um, it, it sort of elevates taste above all else. And, um, it, some of the ethical questions get blurred because they're, you know, these different types of foods have different taste markers. And so, um, here it's kind of known as like, these are the bougie white people food and, um, and there are really clear markers of race and class tied to types of foods. And so that, that gets really complicated really easily as well. Um, so, but here in the States, we just have such a complicated, um, story behind sort of the production of food and how food gets to our table and, um, just historically, you know, what farmers have access to land and what farmers, um, who have had land taken away from them. And, and so we have, it's just really complex, I think, kind of our, our mm. history of food production, that then leads to really complex state of food today.
0: Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's, it's interesting. One of the, um, one of the things I've been thinking about is, and you've touched on it, even how what how I have on my plate, how did it get there and mm-hmm. what were the processes like of it getting there? And, and you're right, I think there, there would definitely be a complexity to it and perhaps deep nuances that, that make it so complex. And yet that's been something of, of, of my personal reflection of hmm. well was this a sustainable process was what what yeah. in terms of the food i have on my plate something as well in that is quite unique to both of it well sorry it's not unique to both our cultures it's quite quite prevalent across the world and yet definitely definitely more so in western culture for sure and that is this sense of isolation to how we even eat our food. Yeah, fast yes. food. It's yes, the yes. you go through the drive-through, and I. It's interesting since reading your book, I've kind of gone to a place where I was like, okay, sometimes there might be be a necessity there, and yet. I kind of want to make it my life mission to never eat alone again. <laughs> That's <laughs> a bit of bold, bold statement to make. I know, like, no, <laughs> like but... it's probably un- it's probably unrealistic, and I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong to eat by 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 oneself, but it's, it was just interesting the sense of like I go through the drive-through late at night and you know sometimes I don't even go to the store I'll go to the drive-thru and then I'll eat in my car in the car
1: park yeah 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 yeah
0: oh yeah and I just myself my goodness and it's just quick fix eat as well it's it's not mindful eating or or I would say an an embodied experience either it's just you know drive-thru get the food and I'm by myself as I'm eating yeah
1: yeah yeah no I I think it's that's so real and um you know, I mean, I, I study this and write about this as my, as my life's work and still I eat by myself often and, and do the same thing. I drive through the drive through and then sit in my car and eat it, you know, finish half of it on my drive home. Um, <clears throat> and I think that this – that sort of tension is a reminder of um, both this incredible beauty of food and, and this reverence that I think we ought to give it. But then also the fact that, like, we need to eat a lot. Eating is, is <laughs> such a big – Part of our lives, which can be a burden. Um, I was recently um, at a kind of a taco restaurant in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting with some friends. Uh, We are all food studies folks. Um, We were at a a food studies conference and we were sitting at this table and and we heard someone at the table next to us comment. It was a teenager, I think. And he said, man, life would be so much more affordable if I didn't have to eat all the time. (laughs) We wow. all kind of chuckled because it's so true. You know, it is a big time suck. It's a big money suck. And um, yeah. it it eating is wonderful and also this terrible inconvenience. And so um, we we can't be so deeply thoughtful about every single bite that we put into our bodies at all time because <laughs> if we were, like, that would be the only thing we could ever think about. Yes. Yeah. And so <laughs> kind of remembering this, like, there's great reference and delight and beauty in food. And also, like, we have to have a lot of it. And, you know, we can't. Yes. Yeah. You can't have that reference all the time. One of my yeah, very absolutely. favorite books um, is Robert Far Capon's Supper of the Lamb. Have you read that book?
0: I haven't, but I did uh, uh, Google him put it on after, your after yeah. reading your book and it's on my list.
1: Oh man, he's fabulous. But so one of his kind of most famous chapters within this book. Um, so the, the book is essentially a theology of a dinner party. Um, and he throughout it um, kind of shares recipes for how to cook an entire lamb in four different ways. Um, and the, one of the opening chapters is about cutting an onion. And so it's this long, long chapter about slicing the onion and noticing every vein within the onion and every, every layer and um, pulling out all of these like beautiful theological complex themes within the slicing of an onion. And then it ends with now slice six more. Um, and <laughs> Beautiful yeah. humor of like, yeah, you can't do this every single time you cut an onion because you have to yeah. cut an onion all the time. Yeah. Um, and I That's just it. love that, that sort of tension and playfulness. Yes.
0: Yeah. No, it, it is wonderful. And and I, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head where it comes to, it's like, yes, we, we can, we can be mindful. We can, we can be aware of what the spirit's doing in, in that moment as, as we're cooking, but we also just, just need to cook the meal. Yeah, <laughs> and,
1: Exactly. Exactly. And,
0: Yes, yes, man. Oh, this is so fascinating. I mean there's, there's so many rabbit holes i could I could go down, but <laughs> I and, and and perhaps for another time, but I did want to ask some other questions because of course, some of our listeners perhaps haven't read your book, and I'll be linking your book in the the show notes and and telling people about it. Um, nonetheless, I was wondering if you could perhaps give us a little bit of a taste of some of the examples of the communities that you that you you wrote about in the book, even if it's just one or two. Um, yeah, of the communities that you're aware of who are incorporating food in their worship, what are what are some examples you can give of how they do um, eating and food and community and worship?
1: Yeah, so so in my book, um, I I visited nine different churches. Um the tenth church in the book is thoroughly church and unfortunately that was you know just logistically impossible to visit uh, but I I visited nine other churches spread across the United States um, that worship around the table and they're a range of denominations a range of geographic locations urban suburban rural um, a range of sizes there are some as small as six or seven people and some as large as 150 people um, wow. but yeah, but they all they all worship around the table and they have their meal or they have their worship service over the course of a meal, recognizing the entire process of eating as a part of Eucharist. Um so one of the churches that I got to know best is called Simple Church. It's just outside of Boston, um in a sort of semi-rural area, suburb of Boston. Um and I got to know them the best cuz I that's where my research started, um, and then I actually worked for them for a year while I was researching and writing this book. Um, but they gather every Thursday night over a meal in the basement of another area church. Um, the pastor is, well, Simple Church started as um, the United Methodist Church in this town uh, had dwindled down to about five members, and so they decided to cl- to close their church, to sell their building and to use the money from the sale of that building to plant a new sort of creative church endeavor to see if they could, um, get a new church to thrive in this area. Um, kind of the, the ongoing narrative here in the States around mainline churches is this narrative of church decline of, of these churches shrinking and shrinking. And so this is kind of a common prevailing theme of churches getting so small that they can't afford their building and having to figure out something creative to do with, um, you know, Mm. figuring out something creative or trying, trying to do whatever they can to, to get a church to thrive again. And, um, and so their decision was they, they thought, OK, well, we'll give this money to a young church planter just out of seminary and let him sort of have creative reign and, and see what he does. And um so they the church kept the parsonage. um So and it, this particular parsonage was on a farm that was rented out to another farmer. So so he moves into this house and he's surrounded by um, a farm and becomes friends with the farmer and and decides that he's going to plant this church um, that, that worships around the table. And so they he volunteers on the farm throughout the week and they use produce from the farm to make a big pot of soup. Mm. Um, he bakes bread for communion every week, and um, they, as a church, bake bread together to sell at a farmers market to help support their church. Um, because they worship around the table, you know, it, it has to stay small to remain intimate. Um, and the reality is, a small church just can't support itself through internal giving, um, especially a church that is made up primarily of, of low-income members. And so they wanted um, a different means of supporting the church that that didn't make financial, um, that didn't make internal giving this like continued stress, stress point for the church. Um, and mm. so they, they bake together and they sell it at a local farmer's market. And that's how the town knows them as the the church that sells bread. And, um, this process of baking bread together is a really powerful form of community formation they they really bond mm. over it and the kids get involved the kids you know stand at the farmer's market and they they hawk the bread and who can say no to a little seven year old selling bread and um so it's just this really beautiful community that that is built really in every way around food but their worship service itself happens around a table they um open sort of standing around the perimeter of the space um singing and and having a time of prayer. Um, And then they they actually open with the bread portion of the Eucharist. Um, But then after breaking the bread and sharing the bread together, they they walk through a potluck line. They all get a plate of food and sit down at a table. And while at the table, they hear um, the reading of Scripture and a very short sermon that ends with two discussion questions. And then sort of the height of the, the service is this time of dialogue and discussion around the table. Um, so it's really a time to they they see church as as this formation of community um, wow. through conversation and and dialogue and and really digging into scripture and and working through it together um, and then yes. at the end of that they they sing a bit more and then they close with the cup um, and so that rounds out this eucharistic meal that that rounds out this entire service and. It's a really beautiful sort of yeah, wow. modeling of how to be in community. They strongly disagree with one another on various matters, and um, by closing the meal with this cup, they're and and opening it with the bread, they're consistently reminded that in the midst of our disagreement, we remain one in the body and blood of Christ. Um, mm, yeah,
0: yeah, oh, that's that's incredible. I think. It's, it's been interesting, both the conversations in America but also in Australia and I think uh, in a lot of the Western world when it comes to to church, I've been having conversations of people and they they say the same thing to me and it's like, you know what, if I want to listen to a sermon, I can get a podcast. If I want to, okay. you know, think critically about things, I can, you know, listen to a YouTube video on, on you know, particular. Totally. But it says, however... We're so desperate for community, and and yeah. I think that's. I, and I'm not saying that dinner churches are the the ultimate you know solution to all these things. And yet there is something about worshiping around a table with food that brings everyone together in such a unique way, because food is the universe one well, of the universal language, right? Uh, yeah. We all need to eat, and so yeah. to to be able to do community like that is. I think it's been been absolutely remarkable. Um, mm. Kind of seen this growth in, actually, how do we recapture what church is meant to be about, which is a yeah. a body of people, a body of believers, doing community together. And actually, you know, you mentioned about the disagreements that people have, like, and sitting with that in community and yeah, and being drawn together in that way.
1: Yes, I, I yeah I think it's it's a huge problem that we largely don't know how to remain in community with people we disagree with, and I think it's because we aren't currently sort of we don't have any clear institutions um, that form this kind of intergenerational community, um, but also community just across across various types of differences, and I think the church should be that, but but when the church takes this turn primarily to kind of Preaching as the center point of worship, then a podcast becomes just as valid. Um, but when when this community formation is really seen as a vital piece of um, of what it means to be the church, it really changes things.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm reminded of you know, the the early church when it was you know these agape feasts, these love feasts, and yeah, it's, it's exactly. This, it's it's a it's a coming together. It actually embodies. The message of who and and the, it embodies the kingdom of God because it's the grand yeah. equalizer of we're yeah, all going to be definitely. at this table um, under under the, the the lordship of Jesus at this one table and yeah. people are invited to to sit and eat and and celebrate yeah. and 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 mourn together if needed and have joy together yeah. and I, I just think the just the the, the imagery of our faith being embodied in a meal it's it's absolutely incredible i'm wondering though um what are some of the unique challenges for um these communities that you've seen these this unique way of doing church
1: yeah i mean the biggest challenge for all of them is figuring out kind of a financial model that works um Mm. because the reality is you know they they can't sustain themselves through um through internal giving um and they are all sort of on on the edge of their seats figuring out like can we sustain ourselves in the long term and you know for the pastors some of they've all chosen different models some of them the pastors don't take a salary from this church they're bivocational um so they will have another job and then they they um do this church on the side um mm-hmm. which allows the church to flourish but so means divided attention on the part of the pastor um there are some that, like Simple Church, has another sort of vocation within the church that they share together, and um, there are some who are entirely dependent on on grants, and um, you know, don't know how long you know they're they're going to be dependent on the generosity of other foundations and and their mm. denomination for the long term. Um, yeah. There are some who are funded through external giving, um, people from other churches who are fans of the idea and want to support it, but don't necessarily attend. Um, Mm. So, you know, they're, they're all having to figure out unique models of how to sustain themselves. And since it's still a fairly new thing, um, there's not, you know, it, it it will be interesting to look back in in five or 10 years and see sort of how this, that spans out and develops. But that's definitely an ongoing point of tension for all of these churches is this question of how do we, sustain ourselves for the long term financially um i think another unique challenge is um how to deal with food allergies and this this rise of of food allergies eating together is very complicated because of that um Mm. and and the the point so I, i do a lot of trainings with pastors who are thinking about starting dinner churches um or incorporating meals more intentionally into their community in some way and the the thing that i always point to is that um when we think about food allergies in sort of this grand universal sense, it can become really debilitating because there's just no way to account for every allergy that could walk in our doors. Mm. And so instead I like to see, um, well, I like to see dinner churches as a whole as this point of really looking at the needs particular to our community and figuring out how to address the needs particular to our community. So it has to be really deeply particular to our own place Um, and allergies are an opportunity to get to know our distinct community well and how to prepare food for our distinct community and the limitations that exist within it and so I think that can be be a really big complication but it also can be a really powerful um, point of um, just of community formation, too, when mm, people mm. see that their need is seen and met by this community that they're worshiping with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I imagine other challenges come as well in, in terms of because doing church like this deliberately creates um, intimate community. I imagine that there, do, do, have you found that there are some people who find it too intimate? Like, there's actually people who are like, oh, actually I'd rather be at the back row of a, of a large church with multiple rows or what's been your experience yeah, I of mean, those, I think those that people. Folks,
1: folks who attend dinner churches, it's, it's a pretty self-selecting community. So most folks yeah, don't, right. don't tend to come or stay a part of it unless, you know, they're really already on board with the idea. Um, but it is a very intimate thing and that can be too much for some people. Um, but what I have found really fascinating is that, um, a lot of the folks who come, come out of their craving for such intimate community. Mm, Um, I've met several folks in several of the churches who do not identify as Christians and they Mm. just cite such a deep need for community and for relationship and um, Mm. that this community somehow powerfully addresses their incredible loneliness Mm. and that that is a starting point for them. And, um, and I think that that is really telling that there is such a, distinct wow. need for community that the church is uniquely equipped to meet. Um, and I think in time, you know, most of these folks, many of these folks when I have spoken with them have been sort of at a space where they've said, like, I cannot articulate what's happening in this place, but there's something powerful happening here. But there yeah. are others who I've met who said that, you know, they started out that way and, and eventually did come to know Christ through it because, because they were so compelled by wow. this type of, relationships that were born out of this community wow it's a lot it's not for everyone but but I wouldn't necessarily see that as a as a limitation
0: um oh absolutely yeah yeah. no it's no and it's 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 interesting I also think of um the people who within the community because this is the, the the point like when there's that that communal intimacy in a good way it challenges the community as well because you might sit next to somebody who perhaps you really dislike and <laughs> and yeah, it's about yeah. <laughs> how do, how do we how do we grow in that how do cuz i mean that's that's the other thing i mean uh, and and you certainly made this very clear in your book in a healthy manner that you didn't want to uh, glamorize or kind of fetishize dinner churches as this kind of thing, which is you know perfect and, and has right. it all together, but rather <laughs> the creation of community will bring with it messiness. So that's okay. Cause that's yeah. part of that's, that's what it means to do community. It's like, well, how do we, how do we learn, how do we learn to live together?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and I mean, it can be super awkward. Dinner church can mm. be so awkward. And um, I am, I am all about embracing that awkwardness and living into yes. it. But, yeah. but I think, Agreed. I think, you know, we we can so easily um, idolize comfort and this idea that comfort is the thing that we should seek, and that church is the place that should be comfortable. But but it should be awkward too. I think that the awkwardness mm. is a good thing and an okay thing because that is how we get to these deeper layers of of who we are and what it means to be in community.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's it's so important. And would you say then, in in some way? tell me what your thoughts are on this. Would you would you say these type of communities are different from, let's say, a group of Christians who just, who want to get together over a meal, but they're all friends, they all get along well. Would you say that there are those differences between a community like a dinner church, which is for all, as opposed to a meal with friends, which isn't wrong, I'm not implying that, meal with Right. Right. Friends is is wrong in any capacity. But some people say, oh, that that's my church. And uh, I'm not I'm not having people who who need that pastoral space, maybe for whatever reasons. But but would you say then there's perhaps that distinct difference between like a dinner church community and perhaps Christian friends getting together? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think the distinction of it being a church space and it being a sacramental space—that that the sacraments mm-hmm. are blessed and served in this space. Um, that that you, we are taking the bread and wine distinctly as the body and blood of Christ. But that is mm-hmm. a distinct difference. Um, and reading scripture and and hearing a sermon are a part of these meals as well. And so, um, I I do differentiate these dinner churches from just a dinner party, but what I don't want is people to hear me say that I think, you know, that dinner church is the future that everyone needs to get on board with, because I don't necessarily think that dinner churches is what every church needs to do. I think that instead, these dinner churches help to make really explicit this connection between um, mm. sharing the Eucharist and the importance of sharing an entire meal, and so I think that if sort of these dinner churches help us to better understand all that mm. takes place when we gather with our friends around the table, then I think that's great. <laughs> um, mm. You know, I, I yeah. think I think if what people get out of this book is that like you know I'm going to start really paying attention to sharing meals with people from my church community after church on Sunday, then great. I think that my work has been done. Um. I don't yeah, think dinner church is what everyone needs to do. We just, I want the dinner churches to help us think more deeply about all of our meals.
0: Uh, absolutely, and and to foster community, whatever whatever that might look like. Because yeah. that was actually going to be one of my questions. You know, is this the future of the church? But I think you made that clear in your book as well towards the end. And and of course, of course, then that. I mean, you, I, I we we probably in agreement that we want community to always be kind of the, the past present and the future Ooh, that, of the church but what, but what that looks like is um, can different. yeah abs- absolutely um, that said how, how would the church be different um, if we perhaps took more seriously what what meals are inviting us to which is community uh, what what might worship how might the church as a whole mm-hmm. be different if we took that seriously that that communal aspect?
1: I mean, I think it would just subvert our understanding of what the church does, what the church is, um, and would really shift the ways that we live together. I think it would just mm-hmm. trickle out beyond just the four walls of the church into kind of the the ways we live in relationship in our everyday lives. Um, mm. I think it's a distinct point of challenge to sort of... Um, the narratives formed by like capitalist society, which is Mm -hmm. that, you know, that it's all about production, that it's all about individualism, that it's all about, you know, that that there are these clear markers of, of me and my work and what that means, you know, how that identifies a success for me. Um, I think when the church instead focuses on this living in community with one another, it really challenges all of these layers of how we set up our lives and how we live in, in, relationship with one another and and how we view our work and how we view our our play mm. and how we view our worship I think it just challenges all of that
0: absolutely I think when when church is functioning best in community it actually offers a completely different social narrative cultural narrative yeah, it's yeah. the kingdom yeah. and, and you're right and you and and you touched touched on like capitalism and individualism and these these isms in our society especially especially in the west and how doing doing church communally actually subverts all these narratives in astounding ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does.
0: Well, I think we might finish up the the interview there, Kendall. Great. Thank you so much for for joining Joining me today on Deeper and Wider. It has been a fascinating time speaking to you, and I, I wish you all the best. And um
1: Thank you.
0: well, that ends our interview with Kendall Vanderslice talking about the intersection of food and faith. Check out her website at Kendall and also follow her on either Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at KVSlice. And get a copy of her book, available on Amazon and also on Audible. Her book is We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. That's it for this episode of Deeper and Wider. If you like what you heard, then please rate this episode on your podcast provider and share with your friends. To follow my work, then find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash nathan.forster or find me on either Twitter or Instagram at Nathan Deeper and Wider is part of the Expansive Faith Network. To see more content like this podcast, or to support our work, head over to expansivefaith.com. Until then, keep on seeking, and go deeper and wider.